Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the podcast. It should go without saying. I'm your host, Andrew Lewis, and joining me today as in the lead up to the most anticipated cricket series, The Ashes, is my resident friend and cricket expert, Cameron McDonald. How are you doing, Cameron? Fantastic. Good, mate. Yourself? I'm I'm good, I'm good, I'm busy, and there is a lot going on in the cricket world. So I'm going to immediately disappoint everybody who was tuned who was tuned in, thinking they were going to get another hour of reminiscing about <laughs> blokes who played 25, 30 years ago. We're going to be talking about Chris Matthews and uh, Joe Angel um, and, and Wayne Phillips, not that one, the other one. But um, we've just got too much current events going on at the moment so we're gonna we're gonna park the uh the historical test 11s for another day maybe at the end of the ashes but we've got plenty to talk about with cricket and a lot going on amazingly um in the last couple of days we've seen some uh, you know tremendous uh, tremendously eventful test match in india with uh, ajaz patel the new zealand uh, spinner becoming the third man in test history to take 10 wickets in an innings. And this was followed by New Zealand Julie then getting skittled for 62. Um, two things that didn't happen in my day, to sound like an old man, but um, amazing that uh, uh, you know, this sort of uh, that a, a New Zealand test spinner has uh, taken a tenfer, considering... Um, it's probably they probably don't. I mean, they have they have a proud history of handy finger spinners who were very good cricketers and in guys like uh, Bracewell and Daniel Vittori. But uh, I wouldn't have had uh, Spinner as the most likely guy to take two, ten wickets innings for New Zealand. I would have thought Seamer on a Dunedin green top. Um, just amazing, incredible, isn't it? Um... And in in India against India. Yeah, well, I mean, if that, that probably um, gave him his best chance. Um, to be fair, I don't think he'll be—I don't think he'll be claiming a ten for back home. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I sort of one of my first things that I thought of was Michael Clark's um, six for nine, um, or, or whatever it was he took um, over in India. Um, it, it, it can make a, a handy left arm spinner look pretty good those conditions at times guys that um you know that normally don't turn a heap are suddenly fizzing past the edge um but the data is discredited at all i mean it's Mm. it's such a remarkable achievement i think it's happened for the third time so there's no taking the gloss off it but um yeah i think um the planets aligned for the young fella and he took his chance and um yeah the they, uh, they, they did have, they lost three wickets in quick succession there. So he was, he was not just plugging away from one end and just accumulating 10 wickets. So he did, he did bowl nearly 48 overs, um, but he was taking wickets in batches and, you know, he's got Pajara and Coley for ducks. Um, that's pretty good company in terms of, you know, quality of batsmen to be dismissing. So, and, and the bird agrees. Um, I, th- I think that's, is, that doesn't sound like a duck. That sounds more like an albatross. But um, just, I mean, just you can't speak highly enough of the of the uh, performance when you think of 
you know, Richard Hadley didn't have the presence of mind to drop the tenth wicket. He took the he took the catch for the tenth wicket when he took nine for fifty two in Brisbane in nineteen eighty five. Um this this is gonna get mentioned in the same breath when they're talking about great New Zealand performances now, and that's also good company to be in. The great Richard Hadley. Mighty company. And yeah, I mean you, you took the words out of my mouth, but quite remarkable that they that they then get rolled for sixty two and um yeah, undo all the good work, I suppose. But um, mm. he'll take home a couple of match balls, that's for sure. Yeah, and um, yeah, that was yeah, sort of remarkable. That and then, uh, it, it, you can't deal it with with it flippantly. This, um, you know, India last summer, I think, what did they get bowled out for twenty six or something? Some thirty six, yeah, thirty six in Australia, and, and in a series they won um, with the pink ball, but I, it didn't happen at night. Did so, um, or dusk? I thought it happened when the conditions are best for playing the pink ball. So, um, we are seeing more. We saw Australia nine for twenty-one, and ended up getting make, making forty-seven. Just seems to be these. When I was growing up, a hundred and five was a low score. Um, there was that time Australia got skittled by the West Indies for seventy in Perth, but that was. It's not the only one I can remember from the Aussies in that decade, and this—I don't remember one in the in the 1990s from them. But it's just this really low scores um, does seem to happen a lot more in Test cricket than it used to 30 years ago. Yeah, I mean it's it's that um, maybe it's the advent of T20 cricket, um, but but that sort of gritting your teeth for a a 20 off 100 balls to see your side through to 100 doesn't seem to happen too much anymore. Mm. Um, funny you mentioned Michael Clark's six for nine because that happened at Mumbai too. So um, <laughs> there's a Kerry O'Keefe joke there about grass um, that uh, we might hear in the next few days on Fox Cricket because when they mention, because it just seems to be that, that that place, the ball turns square from the first ball of a match. And that's right. Michael Clark had a happy knack of taking wickets at important times, but he was not the sort of person who should have been taking six for nine. And I think Australia no. then got bowled out for not many after the, in that match as well to chase, you know, fail to chase a low total. So. I mean, Saki boy had a pretty good tour of India too. There's just, you know, I don't, can't, can't say what ground he did it at, but, um, yeah, I, I think guys that traditionally don't turn the ball a heap, and Michael Clark wasn't necessarily that. He did he did sort of make it fizz a little bit, but you know he um he, he again he's not a six for nine guy, so it just um yeah it can turn yeah. them into into match winners. It it is interesting, and uh, New Zealand have a mountain to climb in that match chasing now five hundred and forty odd. Um, that'll be very hard for them to chase. But um, let's see what let's see if that what sort of fist they can make of it. Um, you know who made a good fist of the World T Twenty? Much to the very contrary to our predictions, was the Australian T Twenty cricket team managing to take Absolutely, home punter. managing to take home the only major international trophy they had not snaffled. Um, 
a tremendous performance. They weren't, for the most part, they weren't chasing very small titles. A, a strategy that in one way, considering where they were playing, was a bit reminiscent of 2004 and the Test Series in India, Talking, coming back to that. Um, on spin-friendly pitches, they tended, they tended to do it, relying a lot on some sort of big, some guile with, but but with the with the quick bowlers, um, ably backed up by Zampa in the and, and Maxwell in the middle overs, but um, you know they were able to get good production uh, and reliable production out of Hazelwood and Cummins. Um, just um, yeah, I don't think anyone saw that coming. But um, before I give my thoughts on on what this what this means and probably might have thoughts about the T Twenty format of the game, what were your thoughts about the uh, Australian success? Well, straight off the bat, I owe everybody an apology. I couldn't really see leading into a tournament played on those low slow pitches, um, turning wickets. You know, we we were quite picky headed. It seemed about picking one spinner, despite. Uh, Ashton Agar having a pretty good record in our T20 side. You know, we essentially played our just about our Test eleven um, uh, with it with a you know uh, a couple of specialists um, thrown in there for good measure. Um, I just couldn't see us. I, I could barely see us escaping the group, and I felt reasonably vindicated when we scrambled to the line against South Africa, chasing a. Uh, you know, pretty ordinary target there. I felt that South Africa were right for the picking. They had a, they sort of had a better group stage than I thought they might. But um, you know, they seemed to be a relatively soft kill in our group. But I thought we'd run into a whole heap of problems um, once we, you know, started running into the teams, um, you know, that throw all their weight behind their T20 format um, and their T20 teams and their T20 specialists. Um, you know, and as it turned out, I think I referenced the West Indies as a dark horse simply because they'd won a couple of World Cups and, um, you know, they they never fired a shot really and a couple of those older fellas and champions of the format probably stayed on a bit too long. Um, but yeah, something also shifted and I, I felt this happened sort of mid-tournament where, um, you know, I, I would listen to... Um, certain interviews from uh, Messrs Gilchrist and Healy, um, you know, a few others who were suddenly very bullish that we might win the tournament. And inexplicably, the pitches became more friendly for the type of cricket that we were playing. In the lead up to the tournament, every, you know, every expert sort of said that, um, having played so much cricket on these wickets that they would be getting lower and slower. And, mm. um, and that just didn't occur. Um, the dew became a massive factor um, when um, for the, the team that um, was uh, fielding second, um, you know, you, you sort of had to score, um, I reckon, 20 more than what you might have deemed was par. Um, as it proved in the final and a couple of those sort of massive chases that we managed to pull off um, in the semi-final and the, and the final. And the other thing that happened, um, which was glorious, if, if, if you're Australia and someone says to you, you're going to go into the finals 
um, playing pretty good cricket, not your best cricket, but but handy cricket. Um, and you won't have to play England and you won't have to play India. And in fact, you're going to play Pakistan in the semi-final, um, who will be undefeated up to that point, but they're still Pakistan. And you're going to play New Zealand in the final. Um, I think you, I think Justin Langer would have taken that because we had been obliterated by Josh Butler and uh, and the Poms. And, uh, you know, India was everybody's favourite leading into the, t- into the tournament, but had their customary stumble early on in a series or early on in a tournament where they don't quite hit their straps until, you know, the second test or um, game three, as it turned out. And they'd, um, I mean, that was remarkable. And it, it gave way to... Um, by the time we were playing the semis, I, I was pretty confident we might win the whole thing. Um, it just turned mid-tournament, and you know that I remember Gilchrist saying that's the thing about tournament play is um, you just need an element of luck. And uh, you know they, they, they immediately there were there were throwbacks to and callbacks to um, the World Cup in South Africa and the the sort of the turmoil within the Australian group and. Justin Langer's position and are we too old and are we no good at the format anyway and all this kind of stuff, kind of galvanising a, a team for some tournament play, you know, uh, I guess hark back to um, Warren testing positive for the diuretic um, and being pulled out of the team on the morning of its um, first game against Pakistan um, in South Africa. So, yeah. A remarkable, a remarkable tournament, and um, kudos to Australia for for nabbing a T20 World Cup um, against the odds. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, one one other thing, uh, Finch won five of six tosses, and um, that became more and more pivotal as well. So, if we're talking about a team getting lucky uh, when they needed some luck, I think that might have been us. Fair enough. I mean. Uh, I... I actually sort of think the comparison it might have been four years earlier um, in so much as sometimes in a tournament you just get put into a situation where, particularly in, a, in cricket tournaments where there are group stages and, and, and then what happens now is that, is that there's not very the knockout matches are minimised. Um, most of the major matches, most of the major competitions sort of now have just semi-finals and finals. Um so you're not you you know teams aren't used to that playing in that knockout situation. But sometimes if you just find yourself in a situation where okay we we just have to we just have to win every game we just have to keep winning, which is what happened in '99, where after losing to Pakistan and New Zealand, they just the the Aussies just found themselves in a situation where they okay well, we just can't lose it again at any stage, and you know culminating in the most ridiculous escape probably in, in one day cricket history which which in any match of any real import which was the semi-final against South Africa um, which was by all rights over 10 or 12 times over over the course of the 100 overs and somehow never really salvaged it's a more ridiculous escape than the semi-final in 96, um, which sort of just, that, that game swung once. 
Um, but my thoughts more broadly on the on on T Twenty is that it just seems, and, and I don't know what you do about this, but it just seems important to have guys in form at the right time. Um, and that can happen in an instant. The player of the tournament was Dave Warner, and no one in their right mind would have thought that was about to happen before the tournament. All the criticism about Australia being too old pretty much centred around Warner. Um, and he's hit form, and Marsh, Stoinis, and Maxwell have hit form. So it wasn't actually that important that Finch and Smith made that many runs. Um, they made enough, but other players just were, you know, just in ripping Nick. Maxwell was the only player of those guys who was in form going into the tournament. Um, but, I mean, obviously the toss has played a role, but I think you've still got to have those guys in form because, it, it, as has been said about T20 cricket many times, you know, you can lose a match in 12 balls. Um, you lose a couple of wickets and then you have a, an over where you have one run or, or, or don't get any runs, and that's the game. That the, You know, you're suddenly chasing 12 and over instead of eight. Um, There's this lovely it, chatter as well about, um, you know, experienced teams getting the chocolates in World Cups. Um I, I hadn't been privy to all that chatter, I guess, before this tournament kicked off. But, you know, there's a lot of experts saying that's why you had to have Australia in the mix because whether they'd played a lot of cricket together or not in this format, they'd certainly played a lot of cricket. And those big moments, you know, Matthew Wade's no superstar, but um, he knew what he had to do um, to get us out of that. Um, yeah, I mean, incredible. Yeah, incredible amazing. performance. Amazing, and, and you know, an absolute um, feather in the cap of what's been an excellent uh, career. Hmm. Um, but he wasn't that guy. I mean, Wade and, and Stoinis got us out of a couple of tricky situations through the tournament and then weren't required in the final. But, you know, you want old heads in that scenario um, where, a, where a young and brilliant um, Josh Philippi, as an example, um, might have more range in his hitting, more places on the ground he can hit to. He just didn't, you know, maybe he doesn't have that cool head just yet. And um, it was left to, you know, guys that we've seen play cricket for a long, long time, uh, all playing at once, all playing together. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great feat. Um, and and, 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 and play, yeah. players, who have, players who've all had, you know, significant failures, it's certain stages and have bounced back. So, yeah, Josh Philippe, Josh Philippe has been in the system for 10 minutes. He hasn't had the opportunity to have, you know, a real punch in the guts. But whether it's, you know, being dropped or, you know, stuff off the field or, you know, the biggest punch in the guts, self-inflicted, of any Australian player in, in my lifetime, which was Sandpaper Gate. All these guys have had um, have had to deal with adversity, even if they've been the authors of the adversity. So, 
when the pressure came on, they were just they just seemed to be better to deal with it. And you, there's always pressure on you when you're chasing. And and the best, you know, deal with it. So it's it's great that we've got it. It's great that we you know we'll we'll come home next year and play a T20 World Cup as champions. Um, in what will be, you know, a pretty unique tournament in terms of the conditions that you know a lot of T20 cricket gets played in. Um, it doesn't get played in Australian conditions very much. Having said that, the Big Bash is starting tonight. We're recording this on Sunday, so um, that tournament I, might spell the end for a, a couple of our, um, you know, like this this Warner Finch combination. It's hard to see either of them playing too much cricket after that home World Cup, and um, mm. at their best, they've been um, pretty remarkable in the pajamas. So, um, good chance to get along to some of our venues and say goodbye to. You know, I reckon a, a fair few cricketers might um, might wrap it up after that tournament. It'll be interesting. There's a summer after it, so it's. I mean, it's a tournament that starts the summer, which is unusual for Australia. We've had two 50 over World Cups, and they've both ended the summers. So it, it'll it'll be it'll be interesting to see whether that 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 takes place. Um, but certainly, you know. I'll be looking to get along, and, I th- and, I, and you know, living where I lived, I think there'll be some matches in Geelong between some of the lesser countries in the early stages. So, um, that'd be a good opportunity to to get along to some cricket and see some. I mean, T Twenty does does seem to be the, the the designed or the designated way that the ICC have told smaller nations to try and build in world cricket. And in tournaments, so um, rather than the World Cup, so the 50 over World Cup. Um, but congratulations to the Australians, and it got that trophy that was missing, and um, we've got the complete set. Um, On to the longer form of the game, and obviously, uh, the main story in Australia cricket between the uh, Australia winning the T20 and right now has been the uh, story surrounding Tim Payne no longer be kept no longer being captain of the Australian cricket team and 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 now not being in the team at all. Um, a rather ignominious end um, to a career that bubbled along for a while and then you know he came back and, and then he became captain under the most extreme pressure circumstances and sort of restored a bit of sheen to the Australian test team. And now, you know, I feel like that sheen has sort of come off whether it's, um, whether it's warranted or not. It's, um, it's, it's a difficult situation and not one that's easy to talk about. No, no. And it's, um, <laughs> is the failure entirely Tim Payne's? I mean, we, we don't like reading about, um, you know, what took place and, and the the small bits of info that we actually have about it. But um, the, the sort of cover-up aspect to it um, seems to belong to another era. And I think if it wasn't for um, Sandpaper Gate, 
um, then potentially that cover-up doesn't take place. Tim Payne represented something to Australian cricket off the back of that scandal that uh, he and Langer teamed up to, you know, change the way that we played cricket. Um, and whether you bought it, like whether you watched the test and went, gee whiz, these are just rosy-cheeked, shiny young men who, you know, are away from their um, wives and partners for 11 months of the year playing cricket all over the world and um, they don't appear to be, you know, affected negatively by that in the slightest. You know, whether you bought that or not, um, uh, it was out there. We had to repair our image and they were the characters that those people assumed to get us through a really tricky time. Um, and, yeah, as you say, I think Tim Payne did a pretty admirable job. Um, the fascinating thing uh, off the back of all this, and English cricket's going through its own dreadful scandal, um, mm. but the the interesting thing is that, you know, there, there does seem to be bubbling away this sense that the Australian cricketers aren't necessarily overly happy with the governing body and they're not happy with the way Tim Payne was treated and they as a player, you know, a, a group of players are trying to throw their weight and support um, behind Tim Payne where Cricket Australia did not. Um, it's so, it's fascinating. I, I find that a really fascinating watch because, um, you know, they're, they're going to go out. I, I, I firmly believe if Tim Payne didn't need to take a break from the game that um, that he would have played five tests this summer and he would have played five tests this summer if uh, if he dropped five catches at the Gabba and if he made a pair. Um, I, I think that I think the, the team really wanted him there. Um, but yeah, in some ways I feel he was, he was left out to dry. Um, uh, a little bit in all of this, and I didn't necessarily buy that he was the poster child in the first place. But I, I don't buy um, that that this particular um, action should destroy him necessarily. Um, mm. Yeah, that's my take. Fair enough. Um, I mean, there's a, there is a long history over a long period of time of many generations of the Australian cricketers not having the best relationship with first the border control and then the cricket board and then cricket Australia, the governing body, you know, it's, 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 it's gone back to, you know, the, them trying to stick the extra test on the South African tour in 1970. Um, and then bubbled away from that all the way through world series cricket. And then, Rebel Tours and, you know, the, the forming of the Australian Cricketers Association and Warnham War and, yeah, and it sort of it sort of seems to go through periods where it's not such a big deal and then and then something happens or something develops, it, it bubbles away slowly or there's some sort of event and we're off again. So I don't know what can be done about that. It's not a, it's not a situation where, you know, it is, a, it is a cricketing team with a governing body a sporting team with a governing body. It's not a sporting team with management. 
if you know what I mean. Um, you know, no one describes the president and the board of the Melbourne Football Club who just won the premiership as Melbourne's governing body. It's, I mean, it's a different relationship. So, yeah. you know, there, there, there might be something to do there with sort of it being serving different masters and trying to uh, deal with other objectives. Um, cricket is unique with, with, with regards to Payne and Payne's legacy in particular. Cricket is unique in that, yeah, bring it back to Aussie Rules football because it's close. You know, we talk about the effect that Max Gorn, the captain, had on Melbourne or, or some other captain, but what we're talking about there is purely leadership. Um, Tim Payne's job as captain of, the, of a cricket team is not just leadership. It is also, you know, it is also formation. You know, it's you stand in front of square leg, not behind square leg. Um, you, you know, you're, I want you fielding at point, but I want you fielding so close that you don't have to walk in. It's okay. Um, if you, if he hasn't got a wicket by the sixth over, I'm going to throw the ball to Nathan Lyon and see if he can do something with the hard ball. It's strategy. It's that sort of thing, which isn't, which is, is, unless uh, something has changed about cricket is still essentially his call. So there are more things to take into account. I think in terms of leadership, you know, the, the pain on field record and the, and the record with, you know, in terms of behavior within the team structure is unimpeachable considering where, where, where the, where the team was coming from and where they ended up. <laughs> um, I don't know about the traditional captain skill set for pain, but I don't know if anyone was better. Um, there are a couple of people in the cricket punditry who are, you know, the word I would describe their attitude of pain is, and, and what he did was churlish. You know, they are, they're not really willing to give him any credit because he might not be the most innovative or intuitive uh, bowling change guy. He's not Mark Taylor. Um you know, he got a bit of slack last summer for a bit of bit of chat, which was, you know, probably ill-advised, but not, I'm going to break your effing arm. Um, yeah. So I think, I think, you know, the, the, the pain legacy is complicated and that's fine. Um, people are complicated. And we can we can acknowledge the good while acknowledging the what would be marked on a, a, record, a report card of a of a ten year old kid as needs improvement. Um, you know the most Australian cricket captains' legacy is complicated. Um, Alan Border didn't win most of his Test matches, um, and was surly and like to isolate himself, particularly, you know, in the first half of his captaincy. Um, you know, Bob Simpson and his two stints. Um, Greg Chappell won a lot of test matches, but, you know, until recently was responsible for the worst stain um, on Australian cricket imposed by an Australian cricket captain in the underarm incident. So, um, you know, I... 
it's not a it's not something that we need to really be you know discounting or you know being overly critical of Tim Payne because he wasn't the perfect captain um you know Ponting won a remarkable junction Ponting won more test life. matches than a yeah sorry you might be suffering from the delay but no, no. It, it, it's happening happening at a remarkable juncture in that, um, you know, perhaps the thing most in favour of Tim Payne playing five tests this summer, um, as a 36-year-old with a sore neck, uh, well, firstly was that he was captain, um, but, but then perhaps secondly was that he'd been through this scandal. There's been enough people calling for for his head from a selection point of view without anyone really in the country necessarily knowing who the, the captain in waiting is. Um, hmm. And hence we're throwing to a fast bowler. But, you know, yeah. there, there was no sort of... I don't think we were assured of the fact that he was the, the necessarily um, the best keeper batsman in the country and, you know, and de definitively wasn't past it after, you know, essentially 12 months of not playing any test cricket. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting timing because I, you know, I wasn't sure myself, especially with a sore neck, whether I, whether I wanted him in the team and then all this kind of blew up. Hmm. It, I mean, yeah. in, in all sorts of way, the timing is really interesting because of everything you've said, but also, It's funny that the, the Clark to Smith transition happened really quickly, and it happened right off the back of Phil Hughes dying, and Michael Clark's body finally sort of Michael Clark finally accepting his body was failing him. So that tra that that those were the those were the catalysts for that transition happening, and then the 2015 Ashes happened, and it was probably brought forward 12 months in everyone's mind. But there was a period there where there was a captain and a and a captain in waiting. Um, before that, um, you know, probably, I mean, Water Ponting and Taylor to War was designated by the, the keys to the one-day team being handed to the next captain. So, yeah. um, which caused all sorts of conjecture at the time on both occasions. Um, with with Water Ponting, the conjecture was caused because Steve Waugh was pretty adamant um, in his view that he was still the best man for the job um, in all formats. Um, so... Yeah, we had the situation before the 2003 World Cup where there was a sort of campaign to bring Steve Waugh back into the one-day team, not necessarily as captain, but you know he scored that hundred in Sydney, and, was, and and there was a month of, you know, Steve Waugh is awesome stories, like he had ever stopped being Steve Waugh. But the 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 tailor to war uh, transition was controversial because there was more than one captain in waiting. Um, and it was clearly more than one person who wanted the job, and they were very different people. So, mm. 
you had the Steve War, you know, grindstone approach uh, to winning matches of cricket, which is you just work your opponents into the ground. You work harder and you get every advantage that you can get through, you know, just being willing to do the things the other guy's not willing to do. And then, on the other hand, you've had Shane Warne, who was, so it's like, it's the tradesman and the artist, really. Warne is the, Warne comes from, a, like, the classical Australian cricket school, the the thought and, in you know, you you you're sort of blessed by God with inspiration to play cricket and to think about cricket. Um, but not, I'm not going to be a better cricketer because I go on a training camp and do 50 kilometers of running over a week. That's not going to, that's not going to make me turn the ball more. It's not going to make me know that I need the second slip at short leg. Two completely different <laughs> views on how to win cricket. So it's a it's a unique controversy at the moment because we don't have someone in waiting. And, you know, we've all looked around and for all intents, and, and we've got an, and a former captain and a former vice captain in the team. And because of Sandpaper Gate, and these are pretty good argument, rightly so. They Neither of them have been selected. Um, they haven't gone completely... You know, the question then is, is Pat Cummins a riskier choice than Marnus Labuschagne? I guess who's the, who's, who's the, only, the only guy in the top six who's like, I don't have to, at the moment, I don't have to worry about his form warranting selection. So why not him? Yeah, and... <laughs> If it were that easy to pick a cricket captain, you know, you, you've, you've just been over all the reasons why it isn't. Um, but I've heard a few people say it's a bit of a shame that Labuschagne uh, wasn't handed the vice captaincy or a, a senior leadership role. Um, my view is that he's still a little bit of a brat. Um, you know, very, very peppy around the team. And, like, obviously... I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. This is all just <laughs> things I've picked up from the stump this, mic. And, no, this is know. expert analysis. Come on, let's not sell ourselves short. Okay, no, no, no. You're, you're exactly right. So when, <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm asked for comment by Manus himself on what he needs to do <laughs> in order to land the role, um, I'm going to say that, you know, I've picked up, I, I guess, uh, an aura that, yeah, he's he's still a bit of a kid when he plays cricket um so he's he's and it's all the good things about being a kid but it's all the bad things too he's the only one likely to be charged with dissent for um really cracking it with the umpires when given out lbw when he is plump you know he's he's never out this guy and and so he doesn't necessarily carry the the dignity that we expect from the australian captain just yet and it would be uh, he'd have to learn that lesson very quickly. Um, having said that, I think, you know, it'd be nice to kind of throw him that a bit of responsibility um, because they say that, you know, tactically and as a student of the game, there's sort of nobody better. 
but um you know i, I think it, it it's fascinating to have pat cummins as the captain and i think that cummins and smith is actually a pretty good combo um because for all the worrying we're doing about uh you know a fast bowler not knowing when to bowl themselves and if they're bowling themselves too much or not enough and this and that it's like you know steve smith kind of knows that um and can be that kind of you know i think that they'll lean on each other perhaps more than a captain and vice captain have in the past because they play such different roles in the team um smith gets a really good look at, at the field placing from second slip and um and has played a lot of cricket with pat cummins so i i kind of like the combo um even though i you know i couldn't personally stomach uh, steve smith captaining the team again um i i think he brings a great deal to the vice captaincy and i wasn't sure that he was necessarily a natural captain regardless i mean the proof's in the pudding with sandpaper gate but i um you know i don't know if he's a leader of men i think he's quite quirky and the you know the obvious choice at that time because gee whizzy was making a lot of runs um but yeah you know um i i, I can see I can see Pat Cummins leading a cricket team. Just just before I get to Cummins and my question about him, I just I I just wanted to touch back on Labour Shane for a minute. My questions about how they how how they approached this with him is one, I'll just say, you know who else really didn't like getting out when he start, when he was a younger cricketer? Ricky Ponting. Um and he sorted that out. So, you know. That can change. They're not the they're not the same character. They are not the same. Character. I know, but yeah, Ricky, Rick, you guys know Ricky Potting was really, really disappointed to get out. Um, the second would it have been would it have been beneficial to actually say publicly, you know, the cricket board, the selectors, kept publicly say, look, these are the reasons we did get to Manus. We want to work on this, and we're going to support him. And there is a road to the captaincy if he can address these issues. Would it have been worth? Would it have been worth actually coming out and saying it publicly? I don't know. Uh, potentially, punter. It's not a bad point. And you know, that, you know, George Bailey's winning all um, all this credit for sort of, I guess, putting the debate to bed and saying Marcus Harris is going to open the batting in the um, in the first test. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying that's mm. that's a great thing that we don't often have that transparency in Australian cricket, and guys are left to figure it out for themselves. You know, plenty have bemoaned mm. that from the selectors and having to, you know, to guess where they're at or the or the problems with their own technique and why that last hundred um, on a green top isn't good enough to find their way into the Australian cricket team. So Bailey's being, you know, lauded for that transparency, but. Um, you know, you, you have to presume that that they are working with Manus on on those things, and uh, that he that that he would perhaps be aware of where he sits in the pecking order as someone who, as you say, his position in the team is not being called into question. So, um, you know that that he's an absolutely a project player, um, and yeah, I think. The other thing is, I mean, he's he's obsessed with Steve Smith himself, so I can't really imagine Manus having to give, you know, 
Steve Smith uh, any particular advice. Um, there's just that natural pecking order of leadership there um, that that Manus may may well kind of assume that role naturally. He doesn't captain Queensland. Um, there was a little bit of chatter about that um, Usman Kawaja was being considered for the number five position in the batting order and the vice captaincy, which, you know, potentially we only get a summer out of. Um, but Mitch Marsh was vice captain for a yeah. time. So, um, you know, that, that was, was being considered. Was, for, for Yeah, go ahead. I mean, Kawaja wouldn't be the first vice captain whose position in the team was tenuous. That's right. Yeah. There, there, there was a, there was a year there in the mid '80s where Ray Bright was the vice captain of Australia. So, you know, yeah, this, let's just there, there's a whole internet cottage industry out there of, you know, of disrespect on Ray Bright's name. You know, everything that Kerry O'Keefe says about himself in terms of the ability to turn the ball um, was true of Ray Bright, um, and you know. So, you know, they're, they're, it's happened all the time. Mark Taylor got dropped for a test match in 92, 93 while he was vice captain. Jeff Marsh got dropped as, you know, his career ended when he, while he was vice captain, not by his choice. Um, it happens all the time. Um, Coming into the team to be and, a vice captain would surely be telling Steve Smith that he would never uh, assume uh, an official leadership role within that team again. and. Yeah, Kawaja would be brought back in from the wilderness. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't happened, but look, I, I mean, I don't think Steve Smith should be captain of Australia again. I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, the, the, in terms of that role, the, the event was disqualifying. But that doesn't mean I bear. Really, any I mean, I've dealt with all the feelings I felt at the time. Um, I don't think they should, I, you know, if they're never, if he is unable to be captain of the Australian cricket team, they should be honest with him about that. If he's vice captain now because he's going to be uh, the Pat Cummins consigliere, but if Pat Cummins goes down, someone else is going to take the captaincy and Steve Smith's going to be vice captain to that person. Then that's fine, but that Steve Smith, Steve Smith deserves Cricket Australia to be honest with him about that, because Steve Smith probably at some part of him wants to captain Australia again. If that's not going to happen, and they've made that decision already, they need to tell him that. Yeah, we we sort of wander back through the transparency. um, Yeah, debate. I think that's I think that that's right, largely because I hadn't I hadn't considered. An injury to um, science boy Pat Cummins, who <laughs> who seemingly, uh, well, you know, knock on wood, but um, hasn't missed since he came back. Mm. Does yeah, it's, in terms of Cummins, the captain, the only thing I'd be worried about if he thinks it's too much and he decides no, this isn't for me. Um, I'm not at all worried about. Pat Cummins grabbing the ball when they really need a wicket and he's the captain is Luke Hodge in, you're saying, oh, I'm moving off the half-back line and going in for the next clearance. It's exactly the same. I'm, I'm just, I couldn't be any less worried about it. 
We shouldn't be worried about the best players who have the responsibility deciding that the responsibility is with them. And just because he's captain, he's a fast bowler. It's a ridiculous argument as far as I'm concerned. I kind of agree. I'd rather see them... Um, yeah, and I'd rather see him kind of lean towards that other side of it, which is over-bowling himself. Mm. Um, if if anything, um, obviously, you know, within reason, but the guy's a freak show, you know, capable yeah, of anything be, on any day. Yeah, and I'd be very confident that if there was a situation like that and it didn't work, he'd sit in front of the press at the end of the day and say, that was on me. You know, I took the responsibility. It didn't work. It's my fault. You know, so I haven't, I haven't got any worry about that. I worry about him worrying about that and underbowling himself um, because he's not backing himself. Um, he's the best fast bowler in the world. I don't the exciting have any qualms, element. I don't have any qualms about saying that. He doesn't need La Nina to move the ball. No. And the exciting element of, of um, Paddy Cummins this summer is, has he got another level? You know, the, uh, most of our, our recent captains, however long it's lasted for, have found another level to their performance in the gig. Um, Clark and Smith particularly just destroyed attacks having been made captains. So, uh, you know, Ponting as well. So um, is, there, is there something, is, is there, does he further enhance his all-round qualities? Um, does his bowling go to another level? That would be... That would be pretty amazing it's, from the number one bowler in the world. It's so interesting. It's such the actual question of now what happened. What happened to Tim Payne was was sad, and you know, I'm not going to make any judgment on whether it should have happened or what. I don't think things were handled the way I would have handled them. Um, yeah, they didn't get out in front of it considering it happened years ago, um, and it's. You know, it's going to take any conversation we have about the Tim Payne legacy as a cricketer. Um, but this is a, this is now a much this is this is at another level of complexity going into the single most important Test series we have, which is Australia England. Um, after you know last year's Test series in Australia sort of felt unreal. You know, we were all, you know, there were there was there were places where there were crowds, and the places where there weren't many crowds, and um, you know, things were happening in Sydney for the Sydney Test match, you know, and then and then Brisbane, and but this is, you know, the only thing that's threatening to ruin it is you know, proper Noah's Ark weather forecast for Brisbane this week, <laughs> which is that you know, still is where not, we're sitting? Not, that that's I think still where we're sitting, but that doesn't make anyone excited except Jimmy Anderson, who's like, you know, the the Southern Oscillation Index is is coming up, Jimmy Anderson. It's it's <laughs> La Nina, it's Marbo, it's the vibe. <laughs> um, so let's get there. We've got these five test matches. We don't know where the fifth test match is going to be played. Um. My brain says it should be in Hobart. My head says day-night test match in Melbourne so I can go. Oh, um, give me, give me. How good would that be? I mean, pink ball test match in, in Melbourne in the middle of January um, would just be, yeah, that's that's 
that's that's got me very interested. But that that the head says this is a national game and we should be playing it in Tasmania or, or Canberra. Um, but this but uh, the lead up, you know, the Australians have named their team for the first test, so it's going to be Warner Harris, Labuschagne, Smith, Travis Head comes into the side, Cameron Green. Alex Carey's going to be the wicketkeeper. Cummins, the captain. Mitchell Stark retains his spot. And that 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 sound you hear from St Kilda is Shane Warne breaking things. Um, <laughs> Nathan Lyon and John Hazelwood. Um, now, is that England, official? Uh, Langer England was got 20. Pat Cummins has apparently announced it. Right. There you go. So, um, you know... Um, Justin Langer hasn't had his this is how you be goy conversation to his captain, but <laughs> this is one of those things that it uh, it's angels on a pinhead stuff. The English should have a really good idea of who's going to be in the squad. So I, mean, I, I don't I don't know how much difference this makes naming this team today or naming it on Wednesday morning. No, um, next to none. Next to none. Yeah. Uh, England got 29 overs in from a three-day tour match in, up in Queensland this week, of which Burns and Hamid put on 98 runs and then the heavens opened and that was that. They were playing against the English Lions, who are, who are their second 11. Um, the, 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 the English team, they've got Stokes in, but he hasn't played a lot of cricket lately. Root's been in imperious form this year, but it still seems like the situation with the batting lineup is the same as it was two years ago, which is too little has been left to too few. Uh, um, and they're relying on a bowling attack, which, except for Anderson 11 years ago, um, is largely unproven in Australian conditions. Yeah, I mean, the mind wanders back to um, that that summer. Was that – what year was that when, when Mitch Marsh and Sean Marsh were both making hundreds for fun? Was that the last one, last was time? Was it 13, Might have been 17, 18. So I – Let's like go. Got let's, a couple of hundreds. Sean Marsh got a couple Let's go of to internet. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it does. It kind of feels like that. That um. That you you need to pick a different team, um, particularly your fast bowlers in Australia. You need to pick uh, guys that are going to have an impact, and that that classic English seamer, uh, Chris Wokes type just doesn't have an impact in Australia. Um, and so there will be opportunities um, for the guys batting four, five, and six to really cash in for Australia this summer is the way it looks on paper. Um, and last time, that's what happened. Mitch Marsh had a golden summer. And I remember at the time thinking it didn't didn't really matter who, who batted at six. They would have made some hundreds. So... That points to hopefully a breakout summer for Cameron Green, 
who knows how to make hundreds and to bat big. Um, you know, we, we all want him to be something amazing. With bat and ball, but I, I, he certainly showed that with bat, he's got the potential to bat higher than six. Um, and that opens up some tremendous possibilities he, for the test side, which I sort of covered he, off in our last podcast. Yeah, Green bats like an old-fashioned number three. There's, there's, yeah. you know, I mean, he's a big, tall bloke, but he builds an innings like, uh, as as Kerry I keep call him DC Boone, um, David Clarence Boone. Um, it was was the seventeen eighteen Ashes where certainly Mitch Marsh got his run. Yeah, the hundred eighty one in Perth, but that was a that was a big, it was a three hundred run partnership with Steve Smith. Um. England do seem, you know, I don't know enough about um, the selection of fast bowlers they've got here other than Anderson and Broad. Anderson is, you know, one the greatest bowler of his generation in terms of an English bowler. Um, I don't know if I've seen, a, I don't know if there's been a better English fast bowler in my lifetime. But other than that, in terms of how... You know, English bowlers, fast bowlers who have come here and have had success. Um, it has been it has been ones who have been able to bowl fast. Yeah, and that's right. It's just it's just how it is. It's been, you know, guys like other than maybe Angus Fraser, who was probably the closest thing England have had to Glenn McGrath in terms of the actual ability to just hit a spot over and over and over again. And his height, yeah. Yeah, um, they you know all the way back to John Snow, it's just been raw pace, and yet England somehow rather than and, and you know we're all the poorer in terms of cricket fans for not having Jofra here this summer, oh, um, because yeah and you know we're going to we we must hopefully see that at one stage in an Ashes series, him coming here and bowling one fifty in Australian conditions uh, with a mm. red ball, mm-hmm. but in the meantime, England have persisted. With taking fast, you know, taking bowlers over here who don't, you know, you know, it's another Mark Elam. Let's bring another guy who bowls high one twenties, low one thirties, and with a Dukes with a with a bit of grass left on the pitch, um, can be a real handful. But you know, on a day three Gabba wicket where it hasn't rained, um, is just fodder. And it's just fill your boots. And I mean, you just can't. They were better off taking some raw 19 year old um, who bowls 155 but hits the pitch five times out of six. Mm. I just feel. Because we know the other way doesn't work. Yeah, it does feel a bit, it does feel a bit tried and tested and, and failed. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and the, and the batting, you, you're kind of spot on. Um, so much rests on Joe Root, who's been incredible um, late. Um, you know, figured out a way to turn those fifties into big scores, and is doing it very consistently. Probably the best batsman in in Test cricket um, this last couple of years. Um, and around him, there's Stokes, who you know, <laughs> we all know what he can do. Um, and he, he's also, he's the guy who, even short of cricket, who 
just has that ability to kind of say, not today. Uh, and he had that on his first tour. Um, hmm. You know, he, he, he arrived um, sensationally, like in the middle of that blitz by Johnson and Harris and co. He sort of stood defiant, made a really good hundred in that series and um, burst onto the scene. And, you know, he could easily, he could easily play some really great cricket uh, around that, I, you know, I don't, the makeup of, I, oh, go ahead. I don't want you to feel left out, Cameron, because in my NBA preview pod earlier in the year, a couple of months ago, I came up with an award-winning analogy about Zach Levine and the Bulls being the Backstreet Boys or in sync. <laughs> um, Australia, Australia, the test cricketers coming from other countries, touring Australia is like uh, how Frank Sinatra describes New York in the, in the theme from New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Mm. And we've seen that with Coley and we've seen it with Stokes. They were both guys who came here and from the first moment they set foot on Australian soil, it was like they were up for it. It was like, this is the challenge I want. I succeed here. I'm ready for anything test cricket can throw at me. And yeah. And, you know, he's, you know, it's, you you never, Root might be the best batsman in world cricket in test cricket over the last two years i'm not disputing that but there'll be a bigger roar around australian stadiums when we get stuck out yeah that's right i think that's right and and you know that's based purely on one test match arguably but then around that you know the makeup of that english team for the tour game even was interesting because you could probably argue that ollie pope um was almost a lock for that top six. And now it looks like Johnny Bairstow probably plays. Um, you know, some touring sides, you know, will we'll pick an 11 versus an 11 and say that you shouldn't be reading anything uh, out of it. Or, you know, when you go to AFL training and it looks a whole heap like your 22 are running around in one colour and there's a bunch of other blokes uh, running around in a different colour. Um I'd be reading that that's the team they're going to go with. Um, and best own test cricket's interesting. But again, you know, at his best can be quite brilliant. Um, and has been a fearsome white ball player, as has Josh Butler, who, you know, through the T20 World Cup was was the best player in that form of the game. So can it click for these guys? Or, you know, are they flaky at this level when the true test is on? Um, and are they going to struggle to post much beyond 300 over and over again? Um, and uh, are the Aussies, um, through the stability of um, Smith, Labuschagne, there's probably plenty of runs left in a home summer for David Warner, Cam Green, you know, um, and and that's to leave the two positions in the team that probably were the least clear. Um, but Travis Head's made some good runs for Australia, so... Um, you know, are these guys going to put on 450 and 500 and leave uh, England with too much to do on day four and five? Um, that's that's my read of it on paper because that's what happened last time. Mm. Yeah, it was a it was a it was a series last time in Australia that was that 
was dominated by enormous Australian scores. Um, two scores of uh, two scores for of over six hundred declared. So, um, it's it's something that um, it's something that England need to avoid. They need to be able to break partnerships and keep Australian scores as low as possible. Um, wrap up. Do you have a do you have a number? Is it time to get the big novelty hands out? The Australian hand and the English hand, the fingers. <laughs> to... <laughs> the um, the most interesting thing at play, I guess, is that Australia just haven't played any Test cricket or any cricket at all um, beyond the T20 mm. World Cup. Um, a couple of Test tours called off. Um, you know, uh, basically since our last home summer, which you know. We came up against a world-class team and we fell short. Um, and, yeah, so I think that's probably the most interesting thing is how out of practice are we? Um, how short on cricket is everybody? But England have been playing a lot of test cricket. Um, but are they any good at it? Um, <laughs> I, th- I, I think it's probably a 3-1 type of vibe. Across five, do you have a fit? Do you have a feeling of where England would win? Uh, you know, something crazy could happen with a pink ball. If I had to take a guess, um, that's where yeah. you'd feel under lights that um, that a little bit of wobble might come into it. And you know, we, we we've always been susceptible to the moving ball. So, do we get through those tough periods against Anderson when he's got his tail up? Um, you know, I think he's only going to play three test matches, but I bet you he plays both of the pink ball tests if that's the way it eventuates. Mm, yeah, I mean, if there's a yeah, he'll certainly play in Adelaide. He might not play in Brisbane. They might not bother with him if they think that the match is not going to be one that can be that can produce a result considering the weather forecast. Uh, um, yeah, I tend to agree with your analysis in terms of if England are going to win a match, it's probably going to be a pink ball match. Um, but I don't think England are going to win a match. So um, I'm going to go 4-0. And, you know, I, th- I it's just been consistent with what's happened recently. I don't see this England side as a fundamentally different side to the one that came four years ago or eight years ago. So, you know, I think we've we've, we've all had the discussions in the punditry that we've had that have been taking place before this series, <laughs> pardon me, four years and eight years ago about the quality of the Australian team, and it sort of hasn't come to really be accurate in terms of the results of those test matches. So I feel like there's not much reason to think, other than the point you made about Australia not playing much test cricket in the lead-up, but Australia traditionally doesn't play a lot of test cricket in the lead-up to a home ashes series anyway. Um, they like to, you know, they don't, they go, they don't go on tour just before. Um, they usually like to have a, a, a slightly more domestic build-up. Um, you know, I think that's the variable is just lack of red ball cricket for the Australian team. But um, I don't feel any great sense of confidence about the English ability to win a test match in Australia, considering it's been so long since it happened. 
Yeah, bang on. Yeah. Anyway, we'll get back together to wrap up the Ashes um, after the series to talk about cricket. So, um, hoping for a good series, hoping that the wet wait, the rain holds off this week, so we get days play. Uh, you know, full five days play. We're going to result. But 11 o'clock Wednesday, it is on like Donkey Kong for the Ashes once again. Um, scheduling note, we are going to have one more edition of the podcast before the end of the year. We're going to get Cameron and Daniel back to do a little bit of NBA preview. But until then, Cameron, thanks for joining me. Been a pleasure. No worries. And we will catch you on that aforementioned NBA preview the next time on It Should Go Without Saying. Thank you.